go back to the Third Punic Wars of 149 BC and you will find the Roman army surrounding the city of Carthage with the intention of wiping its people off the face of the earth. In 1209, Pope Innocent III ordered the Albigensian Crusade to march not on Jerusalem, but instead on southwest France, with the sole aim of eradicating the Catholic Christians from the region. At around the same time, around the other side of the globe, Mongol armies led by Genghis Khan were sweeping across Asia, decimating whole populations of the steppes. Move half a millennium down the ages, down to South Africa in the early 19th century, and you have King Shaka leading his Zulu armies in laying waste to the great Nfwengo, Nguni, and Soshingana tribes. In those days, such actions may have been referred to as laying siege, clearing land, gaining revenge, scattering people, or sending a message. But in modern times, we call it genocide. I've been talking to Gert. I know the destination. These are the evacuation orders. I have to help organize the ship and put myself on the last train. That's not what I was going to say. I made Gert promise me he'll put in a good word for you. Nothing bad is going to happen to you there. You'll receive special treatment. The directives coming in from Berlin mention special treatment more and more often. I'd like to think that's not what you mean. Preferential treatment, all right? Do we have to invent a whole new language? I think so. Although there have been many historical instances of genocide, the term itself is only a recent one. Most closely associated with the Holocaust, it was in fact coined in 1944 by Polish-Jewish lawyer Raphael Lemkin, not to describe the atrocities then occurring in Nazi-occupied Europe, but in relation to the first case in the modern era. During World War I, from April 1915 through to 1917, massacres carried out by the Turkish armies against the Armenian people resulted in the murder of one and a half million citizens. To this day, Turkish authorities reject the events, and what assists them in their denials is the lack of evidence we now deem necessary in order to validate any claims. It is no longer enough for survivors to escape their murderers and then recant their experiences. Instead, it appears we need images, photographs, filmed footage, and more recently, video clips gathered on mobile devices. If they are not readily available, it often falls to film to bear witness. The problem there is that films are made after the fact, and no matter how closely they adhere to those facts, they are only reenactments. When European settlers first arrived on Australian shores in 1770, it is estimated that the indigenous peoples, First Nations, numbered about 750,000. As is so often the case of invasion, they were subject to appalling brutality and wholesale slaughter organised by the state, legalised by the parliaments, and then socialized by institutions such as education. Now, time and again, I am asked by some white man, if I marry this colored person, will our children be black? And as chief protector of Aborigines, it is my responsibility to accept or reject those marriages. Here is the answer. Three generations, half-blood grandmother, quadroon daughter, Octoroon grandson. Now, as you can see, in the third generation, or third cross, no trace of native origin is apparent. The continuing infiltration of white blood finally stamps out the black colour. The Aboriginal has simply been bred out. There have been several cases of genocide since the Armenian disaster in 1915. In 1932, Joseph Stalin issued a famine order aimed at starving over 10 million people in Ukraine. Some of those who withstood the onslaught 
resorted to cannibalism to survive, before being forced into concentration camps or executed by firing squad. This genocide is known as Holodomor, a Ukrainian word defining death as inflicted specifically by starvation. In 1937, the Japanese military invaded the capital city of China and murdered nearly 300,000 citizens. Referred to as the Rape of Nanking, Japan has consistently tried to downplay the atrocities, but it is now considered a crime against humanity because the purpose was not to weaken the Chinese military, but rather strike directly at the civilian population. In 1965, the Indonesian military dictatorship, led by Major General Suharto, sought to drive communism for the country, and in doing so, unleashed a wave of indiscriminate murder, resulting in the slaughter of half a million people. In 1975, the Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot, seized control of Cambodia with the aim of turning the country into a pre-industrial farming society. Those who were educated or affiliated with a religion such as Buddhism, Islam or Christianity were targeted to rid the nation of outside influence. Almost two million people, one quarter of the population, were wiped out. Cambodia. To many Westerners it seemed a paradise, another world, a secret world. But the war in neighboring Vietnam burst its borders, and the fighting soon spread to neutral Cambodia. In 1973 I went to cover this sideshow struggle as foreign correspondent of the New York Times. It was there in the war-torn countryside amidst the fighting between government troops and the Khmer Rouge guerrillas that I met my guide and interpreter Dith Pran, a man who was to change my life in a country that I grew to love and pity. On April the 6th, 1994, a plane carrying Rwandan President Juvenal Habyarimana was shot down by surface-to-air missiles near the Kigali airport. Habyarimana's death resulted in a Hutu slaughter of the Tutsi population. The massacres went on for 100 days, causing the death of almost 800,000 people. Listen to me, good people of Rwanda. Terrible news. It is true. Horrible news. Our great president is murdered by the Tutsi cockroaches. <laughs> they tricked him to sign their phony peace agreement. Then they shot his plane from the sky. It is time to clear the brush, good Hutus of Rwanda. We must cut the tall trees. Cut the tall trees now! The next year, in July 1995, during the Bosnian War, Nearly 8,000 Bosniaks, mainly men and boys, were massacred in the town of Srebrenica. And since 2003, in the Darfur region of Sudan, ethnic Arab militias known as Janjaweed have been attacking the local populations, killing over 400,000 people and displacing another 2.8 million. Raphael Lemkin coined the term genocide to warn the world against the threat of Nazism, hoping that the massacre in Armenia would not be repeated. 
But if anything, it has happened more often than before, with our modern technologies delivering massacres on a scale more obscenely efficient than ever before. All of which may prompt the question, how do you respectfully acknowledge these atrocities? Is drama an appropriate means of recounting the survivors' stories? For all its qualities, Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List was accused of turning the Holocaust into a Hollywood tale of redemption. Would Spielberg have been better off making a documentary? Certainly, Alan Ganet's Night in Fog, Claude Landsman's Shoah and Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing are dispassionate but chilling examinations of our darkest times. But what of cultures or countries with little means of making films of their own experiences? What of cultures where there is little if no tradition of filmmaking? In such cases, all too often, it falls to filmmakers not indigenous to the massacres to document the events. The point of view shifts away from the victim's stories. Indian fighter, huh? Excuse me? Well, it says here that you're to be posted on the frontier. The frontier is Indian country. I quickly deduced that you're an Indian fighter. I did not ascend to this position by being stupid. No, sir. Never. Says here that you've been decorated. Yes, sir. And they sent you here to be posted? Actually, sir, I'm here at my own request. Really? Why? I've always wanted to see the frontier. Do you want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone. The Holocaust has been meticulously and respectively documented. And if anything, the way in which Jewish survivors and filmmakers have gone about bearing witness to the Shoah is an example of excellence for other survivors. Politics is a nasty game. I think soldiering requires the discipline to do the unthinkable and politics requires the skill to get someone else to do the unthinkable for you. But we need the politics, so we put up with them. At least for now. Yes. We look forward to a better day. Peaceful world. A German culture triumphant. That is what we work for. There is something inherently tragic about watching a lot of American cinema. The one genre most instrumental in forging the country's mythology and identity is the Western. And at the heart of almost all those stories is a deception so enormous and shameful it dare not whisper its name. According to historian David E. Stannard, over a 400-year period, from 1500 to 1900, an estimated 12 million Native American tribespeople were displaced, driven from their lands, raped, murdered, and or deliberately exposed to viruses and diseases, with the sole purpose of causing their deaths. Where there have been instances of genocide more vicious and focused in their timeframes, the genocide inflicted on the Native American Indian is the most sustained on record. Yet, film after film, whether it starred John Wayne, Gary Cooper, Henry Fonda or Hopalong Cassidy, each airbrushed the brutality meted out on the Cheyenne, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Comanche, Lakota, Muscogee, Navajo, Pawnee, Seminole, and Sioux Nations. Worse, the brutality is codified in such a way that it is not only accepted or even condoned, but expected 
if not celebrated, by white audiences. In recent years, Hollywood has attempted to redress its past. Clint Eastwood and Kevin Costner are amongst a handful of directors who have admirably tried to address the genocide. But in so doing, they have inadvertently placed white European settlers at the heart of the stories, and thus marginalised the experience of the Native American Indian. As a consequence, the stories focus instead on white guilt and redemption, which is what Schindler's List was accused of. The central character there is neither a victim nor Jewish, but rather a war profiteer and a Gentile. Undoubtedly, Spielberg's strategy was to use Schindler as a means by which the world's vast Gentile population could find an entry point into a predominantly Semitic experience. So clearly, what needs to happen, not just in Hollywood, but across the globe, is for the means of filmmaking to be put in the hands of the survivors and descendants, so they may honour their own histories and so give the rest of us a clearer insight into the darkest side of our nature.